Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdain Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Psachim, daf Samach Zion, page 67. Our daf, as Yerdain, as you put it well earlier today, is a doozy of a daf. Um, today, meaning we're recording the day before you're all listening to this, I suppose. Um, and I would say as follows. There are many, this, the daf takes us in a deep dive, I guess, into different areas issues and areas of Tumantara without um, giving us any kind of introduction or background information because Ardaf isn't really talking about Tumantara. It's talking about where Tumantara, where issues of Tuma, impurity, have an impact on who can, you know, who and how one can eat the Korban Pesach. So we're still really talking about the Korban Pesach, but the daf doesn't seem to be about the Korban Pesach at all. And it, I would say it really gets into some uh, nitty-gritty of the details of of the different kinds of tuma. That said, it makes it that much harder to kind of read it inside and 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 find the nuggets that we want to talk about because so much of it is already presumes that you already know everything that's you know that's being referred to and that you know that you already know all the laws of tumantara and why it would be represented in this way. For example, you know, so if I check myself in the English or sometimes just learn it together with English the first time. But if I check myself against the English, then I discover there's, it's, it's not just that there's a translation of the English, it's that there's a whole lot of additional information that is being provided in the English that is not evident in the Hebrew or Aramaic in the original text if you did not know it already. And so some of these details I think we probably knew already, and some of them are fleshed out in a, in an, in a very welcome way by commentary, whether by Rashi or by a translation, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you may be using. Um, and it makes this stuff, I think, that much more of a challenge to investigate or even just to learn as a regular daf yomi without much more explication than usual. It also makes it harder, I think, to delve in when we know that this is kind of, you know, on the one hand, it was a very important topic for both for the people who are living in the time of the Beit HaMikdash are going to be offering the korbanot, and for Chazal, who are trying to, you know, determine exactly what the details of the halacha would be. But at the same time, and as much as I love delving into the details of halacha, and I pretty much really do, as I say, without the references, without the reference, meaning where all the things are referring back to, it becomes that much more of a challenge. That's one observation on the daf, and I think that it's important, you know, if you've had, a, if you've breezed through here then kol hakavod, more power to you, and, um, and that's great. If you found this stuff to be particularly challenging, then we understand why. Um, and I will add, I would just say that I said to Yardin as we were preparing, that if I were a pulpit rabbi and I wanted to, to, to link this stuff to our circumstances right now under the pandemic, and I'm in Jerusalem, and we're still under a lockdown, and the lockdown is probably going to be extended, and it seems to even be shifting who can, who's locked down under what circumstances, and we've got different gradations of lockdown, right? There's lockdown, and there's quarantine, and there's, are you an essential worker? And then you can do some measure of getting out and about, but not all measures of getting out and about. So I felt that this daf is very ripe for the pulpit rabbi sermon or drasha that uses exactly this phenomenon of, um, of levels of isolation. The Gemara here is, I'm going to read it. I'm actually in the middle. And Yerdain, I know you're going to talk about before and after what I'm saying here, but I, I wanted to just 
provide this as part of the framing of, of what this stuff is, uh, the Gemara quotes the verse, which is, again, used elsewhere on the daf in terms of talking about who is impure and why that person may or may not be eligible to partake of the Korban Pesach. The verse is, Badad Yeshev. It's talking about a Mitzorah, somebody who has, uh, we'll call it leprosy. It's not really leprosy. It's more of a spiritual leprosy, but fine. Badad Yeshev. Alone, he, he dwells in isolation. And so the first thing you see, isolation, and we're all like, oh, we know about isolation, right? It's a completely different experience, I think, your Dana, than if we had been learning this same daf one year ago today. Uh, and I hope, honestly, one year ago from one year to come from now, but who knows? Levadoyeshev, he shall dwell alone. That's what it means. And the the Gemara continues to quote then the rest of the verse or in that same section of and the Gemara continues with the rest of the verse. He will, his dwelling will be outside of the camp. And then the Gemara here explains that the Pasuk, the verse, uh, takes this negative commandment and makes it into a positive commandment, which is, again, the discussion of the halacha. But what I found to be interesting, and it continues into the part you're dealing with that I know you're going to discuss, is this idea of that there's dwelling in isolation. And then that means that he dwells alone. Right? What does it mean, isolation? And what does it mean, alone? And who is this and why is this? And frankly, we're talking about somebody who is, who is fundamentally ill, right, in a, in a certain way, in a very visible and contaminating kind of way. And I said, okay, there we go. We have too much to relate to in a way that it even, I think, makes it even more difficult, or like both easier and more difficult to relate to, um, both because of our current reality and and. and the difficulty of kind of connecting that with a case of tzarat, which is obviously, obviously not at all really parallel. That's why I say it's it's a kind of thing that would make a good drasha. Right. It, it, it's a good drasha if we were all in person in shul. Uh, no, but I, I think your first point was, you know, really spot on. You know, these are difficult deaths. And I think, you know, we want to be talking about Pesach. So when it makes this really long, you know, uh, you know, diversion <laughs> about all of these things about Tuman Tara, you know, it just seems I, you know, and, and they're really laws that are very difficult to get, you know, into the nitty gritty of. And again, it's a classic daf where it's just sort of throwing us into it. Um, a couple of things that I want to talk about here. Um, I think the first is, is, you know, it's an interesting discussion at the top of the daf about, you know, this idea that if the majority of the community of the Tzibor um, you know, uh, right, that if the majority of the community was in a state of Tuma from a corpse, you know, we would still be allowed to bring the Korban Pesach um, at the correct time, you know, and not have to rely on Pesach Shani. Um, and I think what they're trying to do at the top of that dab is really sort of tease out, well, yes, that may be true about, you know, you know, Tuma from a mate, from a corpse, but we know that there are all different types of Tuma. And so I think really what a large part of the staff wants to think about is, at least at the top is, you know, how does that relate to um, other types of Tuma? Uh, well, how do other types of Tuma relate to the giving of the Korban Pesach? But this question of the Tzibor, right? What's the status, the Tuma status of the congregation really only relates to uh, Tumat mate. Um, you were talking about, and you know, this piece of Rav Krista here, um, and, uh, you know, you start talking about this, this thing that Rav Krista here, where he's talking about, you know, which, which people who are telling me that they have to actually leave the camp. Um, and so he mentions here, you know, and this is where they quote this pasuk about that if a Mitzora, 
uh, doesn't leave the camp, right? We know that he has to leave the camp. If he doesn't need, uh, leave the camp, um, he would not actually receive lashes for not leaving the camp because it's coupled with an assay. So the low tasse is he can't be in the camp. The assay is he has to leave the camp. And when you have this formulation of an assay and a low tasse, that's not something that you would actually get lashes for for violating the low tasse. The Gemara then continues and wants to give an actual challenge based on another brisa to Ravchista's view. So again, it's where you have this intermingling. The brisa is a Tanaitic source and Ravchista is an Amora. So we're sort of intermingling the generations and these opinions. And so then the Brisa basically, you know, sorry, then the Gemara comes to say Tanahi, that actually this issue of the of the lashes, like whether or not he would get lashes, because again, Rafisa says he doesn't get lashes. Then they bring a Brisa that says, no, this Mitzvah would get lashes for the violation of entering the camp is actually a Tanahitic dispute. And so they're going to quote an interesting Brisa here, Titania, right? Badad Yashav, right? So this question of sitting alone, levado yashev, the mitzvah has to be entirely alone. Shelo imo. So this idea of levado yashev means that other tame people, no other tame person can be with it. He needs to be the far, sort of banished out the farthest place. The mitzvah is sort of more stringent than everybody else. And I think that's then how, based on this, the Gemara is going to get to really the bulk of the daf which is sort of going through all the different types of, you know, which comparing the different tumors and being which one is more machmer than the other. We'll talk about that later, right? So Mitzvah really needs to be completely alone. Can't be with a Zav, can't be with somebody who's Tumat mate. They have to be totally by themselves. It could be that we'd say somebody who was a Zav, right? Or somebody who was contaminated or, you know, made Tameh, with 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 tuma made with corpse tuma, should they could all be sent out from one camp? Now here is where the brisa gets very interesting because if you look in all the commentaries, no matter what gemara you're using, Steinzeltz, Art Scroll, whatever you're using, there is this assumption that you understand what the camps are that are being talked about here. And actually, there are three levels of camps that are being discussed here: the sort of the camp of the shchina, right? the camp of the Levium and the camp of the Yisraels. But that's like never explicitly said in the Brisa itself. And I would not have known this unless I was like, I re- read the Brisa and I'm like, I do not understand what this Brisa is talking about with all these different camps. You really have to use the commentators here. And it's interesting sort of how sparse the language of the Brisa actually is. I was really taken by that. So then it goes on to say, Tamud Lamar, Velo Yitamu et Machaneha, right? So the Torah you know, continues and says they shall not contaminate their camps, meaning machanehem being in plural. Right? So the idea of this plural camps means to say that it can't, it, it's setting, it's it, it's making all of these camps, you know, be separate camps. So again, this is a, from a pasukim midbar perakei pasukim, right? That the idea is, is that they, they can't contaminate their camps Right. And so it's saying that all of these types of tummy individuals, the Mitsura, the Zav, and the Tumat mate, they're not actually all banished from the same camp. That's how this first opinion of this Brisa, that that's how they're well, sorry, Debray Rabbi Yehuda. This is Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, right? That there there are three different types of of tum of, of people can be tummy, the Mitsura, the Zav, and the Tumat mate. And there are different types of uh of uh of uh, of camps, right? So there's this camp sort of of the Shechina. That's what the Tumat mate is, right? Like they 
sort of can't be around the Shrina. They couldn't go to the Beit Hamikdash. You know, they have to purify themselves. The Zav can't go into the Levi camp. And the Mitzvah is not allowed to go into the Israel camp. So this is the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, and this is what they learned from the word Machanehem. But again, when you read this initial opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, there's a tremendous amount of background knowledge that one would have to have to really understand this part, first part of this b'risa. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon comes and has a different opinion. right? He says this verse of Yashab Badad, right, that you're going to be outside, you know, by yourself, you know, uh, uh, of uh, you don't need it to teach that this stringency of, of the Mitzorah, that the Mitzorah has to be banished from everywhere. Harehu Omer, it says it explicitly, right? Because the Pasuk says they have to send it from the camp, right? Any Mitzorah, any Zav, or anybody who's contam, you know, who has this Tumat mate. Yomar Tmei mate, right? So the verse, it could say, right? Let the let the Pasuk say that, you know, those who are Tamei mate, the Alyomar Tmei mate. So it's reading very carefully, right? Uh, the, the language here, right? It says, V'chol Tamei la Nefesh. And so what the, what Rabbi Shimon is trying to say here is the verse could have said to me mate, right? Um, or right, or could have said to me zav, right? Vaniomer to me to right? And it would have said, right, or and I will say anyone who's contaminated or whose tame with the tumat a mate is sent out. Zavin lo koshal came. But it's not clear that the zav would be would be sent out. So then why does it have to say the specific thing about the Zav in this particular Pasuk? Because by listing the three separately, that's where you learn that there were these separate Machanot. Not from the word Machanehem, but from the fact that they're listed out separately. Right? Maybe just say Zav in the Pasuk and don't mention the word Mitzorah. Right? If it only said Zav, then I would say, okay, the Zavim are sent out. Mitzorin lo kol shekein, right? But we know that the Mitzorain, right? Someone with Mitzorah also has to be sent out. Lama nemar Mitzorah. Why does it have to say Mitzorah? Litain lo machanesh lishi, right? In order to say that there's a third camp that the Mitzorah is, uh, you know, is separated from. Kishuhu omer badad yashav, right? When it says this term of badad yashav, that he dwells alone, Hakatuv nitku laase, right? The 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 pasuk here, the scripture here, right? Took away this, um, you know, uh, takes away the prohibition by giving a positive commandment here. So it, what's interesting to see here is Rav Chista, okay? He's going to hold according to Rabbi Shimon, right? That there's this lotase and ase, and Rabbi Shimon, what he's paying attention to in the languages is this, you know. He's saying the fact that you have to list all three out, that's how you're learning this idea of the three different camps. Okay. Rabbi Yehuda is going to learn it from the word Machanehem. Um, and again, and 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 there's no talk about this having, you know, an assay with a lota assay. Um, my point in reading this passage, though, is I think this is just a very interesting example of a brisa that it's very difficult to read. I mean, it, it, there's just so much background information that is just completely not there. So this, even this concept of the three 
camps. You know, once I read it and I understood it, it made sense, right? This idea that there's sort of the Shechina camp, the Levi camp, and the Israel camp, but there's nothing in the text that actually spells that out well. And, uh, you know, I think we've always talked about that some of the Tanaitic sources, the Mishnah and the Brisa, were probably meant to be memorized and almost were like um, uh, cliff notes to what the bottom line halacha here. But this is like a real cliff note. Like you're missing so much in the Brisa itself. Well, that's what I meant, right? When I said that this is kind of an interlude where the presumption of how much you're going to know is, is so essential. And I'm so grateful for the fact that we have commentaries and with the, you know, and that we have, whether it's a translation or, you know, maybe some of you are gaining this information from us, whatever it is, you know, the, this is what is necessary. And it's, I think a little bit unusual, right? Much of what we've seen before when throughout the Dafyomi so far, we've been able to, to read the Daf. And here we need to like look at the the words of the daf as kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, you know, again, difficult stuff. And I, I I just read this passage as sort of an example of how difficult it actually is. Um, you know, and then I don't think we're going to read it, but just you know, the rest of the daf then spends a lot of time. What I talked about, sort of comparing all the different tumas together and trying to tease out, you know, sort of which one is stricter and, and how they appear next to each other or don't appear next to each other and what laws can you, you know, learn from it. So in other words, if you have a lesser form of Tuma and something is true of it, then its laws, right, or its parameters have to apply also to the stricter form of Tuma, tuma as well. Right. Well, and this is, again, so this is exactly the application of of where does the Korban Pesach or where does the Tuma then end up applying to the Korban Pesach and how many people are going to really need that Pesach Shemi? Right, exactly. And I, I think it's interesting to see, you know, look, obviously Tuma and Tower was a real issue when it came to the Korban Pesach, probably more so than any other Korban because the time itself of it is so fixed. Um, but again, I also want to just draw our attention to, and it's something we've said over and over again, but it's really resonating with me, particularly in this parak. Um, well, also parake as well. You know, these are really laws being written down and recorded in the Gemara at a time when nobody was actually even bringing the Korban Pesach. So as much as we always keep saying it's practical, it's practical, it's practical, this was not practical to their actual observance of, you know, keeping the Korban Pesach. But again, I'm always blown away by the attention to detail that the Amorayim want to give. And I, and I believe that's always been a message of hope, right? They're hopeful they will be keeping the Korban Pesach and Pesach as it was meant to actually be kept. So I think that that's a really important point. And I will add that I think that sometimes there's a different kind of leeway when you're learning in, you know, the, the yeshiva ivory tower, right, which is fundamentally what's happening here, because they don't have to then go out and handle the bloody blood, you know, from the past few pages, right? They they are figuring out based on the word kol. What does it mean? Where's the camp? Right, all of these and the and the Ahmed Bed even more so. I think with this, the Ahmed Bed is really talking about the real again the intricacies of the details of the case of a zav and and where is that going to fit into this same rubric you're doing, that you've now outlined? And I think that this sometimes there's a little bit of a um, I don't know what, like a leeway or something freeing in the learning of it when you can explore it without having to, 
as much as you're considering how it would apply in in real life, it's still different than applying it to the lives of real people who then have to then, you know, offer, offer a korban or not offer a korban. And, and what do you have to tell them, you know, when they're standing before you? That's not happening here. And meaning in the pages of the Gemara, I'm sure it happened in, in the time of the temple. And I think that that makes the limud of it, the learning of it. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to mischaracterize it. I do think that um, it, it gives, I would say, a more expansive opportunity for the learning. And I think that on the, the, the flip side of that is that sometimes then you have to kind of narrow your scope or bring it very much down to earth when you have real supplicants, real you know, people asking questions for Tachlis, what are they going to do, which is a little bit different than what we have here. I, I think that's actually a really interesting point that maybe they almost give themselves the luxury to sort of really go off on what looks like a big tangent because they don't have to worry about the bottom line halacha in a certain way. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. I'm certainly going to be looking at this DAF again. Rank is review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our Vanit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF um, and some of its issues that it brought, brings up about different categories of Tuma, uh, of different people who can be Tame on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.